invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to read the first 19 verses. 1 Corinthians 15. The first 19 verses. This is the word of God. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Then for our text this evening, I take from Lord's Day 17. Lord's Day 17, question and answer 45. You'll find that on the page 218 of your forms and forms and uh, prayers books. Page 218, question and answer 46, Lord's Day 18. And here we read as follows. I'm sorry, 17, question and answer 45. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word as we found it in the creeds and confessions of the church, may God once again add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, gathered here with me this evening, 
If you know something of the historical uh, and cultural condition of the city of Corinth, you will know that it was a very secular city. It was a Greek city, and the Greeks, of course, they were rather impressed with themselves. They were impressed with their abilities to discuss and to analyze and dissect and reason and philosophize. You see, Corinth had many men who were very wise intellectually, and they loved to sit with the academics in the porches of the market square where they would discuss with much human wisdom the philosophy and the meaning of life. And during one of his missionary journeys, the Apostle Paul had been there, and he, he had preached the gospel, and, and, and a church had been established there. And now, in the letter that we have before us, that Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the letter that we have before us, Paul writes to that church in Corinth, and we discover that Paul writes to them because great problems had arisen in the Corinthian congregation. The congregation was torn apart by factions, by social, moral, and leadership problems. It was known that there were sexually immoral people within the congregation, and Paul instructs the church to expel such people from the church and to turn them over to Satan. In other words, in other words church discipline had been neglected. And Paul then challenges the congregation concerning the, their taking uh, cases for litigation before the civil magistrate rather than settling the disputes scripturally among themselves. He urges them, in fact, he urges them to demonstrate their Christ-likeness by being willing even to be wronged and cheated rather than go to the world for legal solutions to questions in the life of believers. And then in chapter 8, Paul advises them with regards to the propriety of eating meat offered to idols. And also there, they disagreed among themselves, adding more fuel to the divisive spirit in the congregation. But there was more. In the chapters 11 through 14, he addresses their divisions with regards to worship, the Lord's Supper, and spiritual gifts. And he impresses them on them, the need for these things to be done decently and in good order. And he appeals for an orderly worship service. And, and then finally in chapter 15, we learn that there were even significant doctrinal differences among them. Paul had heard that some members of the church went so far as to deny that there would be a resurrection of the body. And in light of all of the division and tension, Paul warns the congregation that they were on a perilous journey as a church. They were being led astray by false teachings and teachers, and the denial of the resurrection could only have catastrophic consequences for the church. And even apart from all of their other uh, divisions, without holding fast to that one doctrine, that of the resurrection, they could not even hope to survive, let alone thrive as a congregation. The situation was urgent. Now Paul knew, of course, just as we all know, that when a spirit of division embraces a congregation, it drives the people apart. And then the necessary unity in Christ will be replaced by factions. And that was precisely the situation in the Corinthian church. The members of the congregation were now given to following certain leaders. You know the story. Some claimed to follow Paul. 
others Apollos, some Cephas, and, and finally others claim to follow Christ. And now Paul writes them, and he appeals to them to strive for a singleness of heart and mind. He asks the rhetorical question, is Christ divided? Apparently some members believed and some of their teachers taught that there was nothing after the grave. And it seems they were gathering a following and the congregation was becoming divided. The bond of peace and unity was broken and then in our text we hear Paul responding in disbelief and with indignation. But what of Christ then? If the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Has Simon not seen him after he was dead and buried? Was it not, was it not so that at one time 500 people had seen him after, after his dead body had been removed from the cross and laid in the tomb? And is it also not true that many who saw him there are still alive today to testify to the appearance of the resurrected Lord? And furthermore, says Paul, if you do not believe in the resurrection, then my preaching the gospel to you has been in vain. And then you are still in your sin and you are without hope and without God in the world. And that now is a thumbnail sketch of the situation in the Corinthian congregation. It would be safe to, for us to say that it was not a healthy situation and out of love and concern for the truth and for the well-being of the church, Paul rebukes them and instructs them concerning the resurrection of our Lord. And those truths have been gathered together from Scripture and are presented to us in Lord's Day 17. So we want to listen to the Word of God this evening using as my theme the threefold benefit derived from the resurrected Christ. The threefold benefit derived from the resurrection of Christ. And we want to learn of the resurrection in connection with our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. And for those who are taking notes, let me repeat that. The threefold benefit derived from the resurrection of Christ, our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. Congregation, if you're familiar with the catechism, you will know that up until now, the catechism has been dealing with the humiliation of Christ. The previous Lord's Day deals with Christ descending into hell. And the last, very last question and answer of Lord's Day 16, the one just prior to where we are this evening, we confess there that the anguish of hell enveloped him and God forsakenness was his lot. That was the power of death that entered the world through sin. The wages of sin are death. But all of that changed on that first Easter morning. When the angels met the women at the grave, he greets them with the words, He is not here. He who was crucified is no longer here. He who was dead, he lives. The Lord had risen indeed. And indeed, Jesus rose from the grave, but the consequence of that resurrection is the justification of all believers. The consequence of his resurrection is the justification of all believers. Those who believe in Christ, or if you will, the church. The church is now covered and clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know what that righteousness means, don't you? To be righteous means to be sinless. So, through the death and the resurrection of our Lord, God's people were declared to be sinless 
or righteous. They were justified. And understand this with me now. Justification means that God, as a righteous judge, for Jesus' sake, declares all believers to be free from the burden of the guilt of their sin before him, and that he now makes them heirs of heaven. In other words, God now God now looks down from his throne in heaven, and he sees us, you and I, he sees us not as we were in Adam, <coughs> but as we have become in Jesus Christ. God sees us standing before him, washed in the blood of Christ, and he declares us to be sinless before him. And that justification, whereby believers are now covered by the righteousness of Christ, is a benefit of Christ's resurrection. And we see Christ. We see him immediately beginning to dispense that benefit of of justification and righteousness. Capture the scene with me there already on that first Easter morning. There at the tomb, we see the unbelieving Mary Magdalene. We see Peter, the fallen disciple. And we see the strangers on the road to Emmaus, all fleeing from all the horrors that had happened on Golgotha. But the resurrected Lord comes to them, and he begins to grant to them righteousness. Mary is brought to her knees, While in unbelief she sought a dead friend, she now finds a living Lord and Savior. Our Lord takes Simon Peter aside, and he shows him compassion and forgiveness for his cowardice. Then Christ hurries after the confused and discouraged strangers on the road to Emmaus, and he he comforts them with, with his words until they cry out, that their hearts burned within them as he walked with them and taught them the scriptures as he walked with them on the road. And people God, what we are called to see in all of this now is that each one, each and every believer sought out by the resurrected Lord was granted forgiveness of sin, assurance of pardon, and a guarantee of eternal life. They were made righteous before God. God accepted the redemptive work of Christ on behalf of the sinner, and he declared sinners to be right with him now and forever, all because of Christ's death and his resurrection. His death was in payment for their sin, and his resurrection was evidence that God had accepted his sacrifice, and therefore his cry was, It is finished. People go, that was... Paul's whole point in our text of this evening. What does Christ's resurrection benefit you? What good does it do you that God raised Jesus from the dead? That by his resurrection he has overcome death that he might make us partakers of the righteousness which he has obtained for us by his death. In other words, says Paul, in other words, says the catechism, in other words, says the scriptures, in other words, says God, that Christ, had Christ not raised from the dead, then there would be no righteousness of Christ upon men. There would be no forgiveness of sin. There would be no gospel to preach, for all men would still be without hope and without God in the world. That's why Paul said his preaching would be in vain if Christ had not risen. But now Christ is risen from the dead. 
He has been seen by many eyewitnesses, and therefore we now have hope, and we have God, for we have, we have forgiveness of sin earned in his death and granted us in his resurrection. And my dear friends, my dear people of God gathered here with me, all of this good news cannot leave you cold and unaffected or indifferent. The question asks, what benefits do you receive from his resurrection? And then you confess that righteousness is now your own possession and that forgiveness is now a benefit that you have received from the resurrected Lord. Understand this with me now. It's, it's, it's the old, old gospel. Our sin brought Jesus to the cross and into the grave. Have we really understood that? Really, Have we really understood that? Well, our sin brought Jesus to the cross and into the grave. So if that, tell me then, how does, how does, does your sin bother you? Does your sin bother you? Does, does your sin bring you to tears and sorrow of repentance? It's crucial that you understand this, for you see, if we are not convinced of the need, that need, then the gospel holds no comfort for us. As I explained the morning, this morning, the gospel of good news is good news only for those who have learned to cry out with the psalmist, Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. All those people who cry out, Oh, God, me, a culpa. Oh, God, I am guilty. And who in that humble posture, in contrite heart and broken spirit, when they go to Christ, they will then find that forgiveness and Christ's righteousness will be their own. You know, the charge is often made that we like our preacher, but the preacher is rather heavy on sin than he's light on grace. But, but preachers, understand me, preachers cannot separate those two elements of the gospel. You see, God's grace can be found only in the context of sin. You can't separate those two elements of the same glorious gospel. To present the gospel of good news apart from sin is to present a false gospel, and it is to leave the sinner with a false hope and a false security. We may and we must speak of God's great forgiving grace, but we may present it only as God's grace in forgiving our acknowledge and confess sin. Did we not hear the apostle speaking the words of God after him when he says, if you confess your sin, then God is faithful and just and will forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all iniquity. In fact, the Bible goes on to say, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. But it is confessed sins and acknowledgement of sin that we're talking about. But as the catechism continues, we read that Christ, raised, Christ was raised not only for our justification to make us right with God through righteousness and sinlessness, his resurrection benefits extended also towards our sanctification. We read, by his power, we are raised to a new life. And what we're beginning to see here is that not only can we expect a resurrected physical body in God's time, we also receive, through Christ's resurrection, a new spiritual being. Walk with me for a few moments as we try to work this out together. You see, according to our Bibles, man, in his natural state, is dead 
and in sin and trespass. And as a result of the fall in, 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 in sin in paradise, man, man has become separated. Man has become alienated from God. He cannot find his way back. He has turned up the road, torn up the road behind him. You remember the story. Adam and Eve, our first parents and representatives of the entire human race, they were initially created righteous, sinless before God. But being seduced by the devil, they chose to obey Satan rather than God. And as a result, they and their posterity, including you and I then, lost that righteousness and became children of darkness rather than children of God. And ever since that fateful day in paradise, all of Adam's posterity, including you, me, and our children, we are all conceived and born in sin, worthy of all manner of misery, yea, to condemnation itself. As the old McGuffey reader, and some of you, if you're my age, you will remember that, read that book in the public school. It was called The Old McGuffey Reader, and it said it so eloquently. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Every human heart now, every human heart by nature, what comes naturally to them is to hate God and their neighbor, and they are inclined to all evil. The power of sin and death holds dominion over the hearts of all men since all men have fallen in Adam. But, but, but the glorious good news of the gospel is that Christ has come into the world to reconcile man to God. And what our confession wants us to know this evening is that the death and the resurrection of our Lord not only provides atonement for our sin, as we heard, but we are also given a new spiritual life already now. It is as, the, as he himself has promised, because I live, you also live, and I leave you not as orphans. No, I give you the Holy Spirit. In that new life now, we understand that as the miracle of regeneration, or if you will, new birth, being born again. And God then, by his Holy Spirit, removes that heart of stone we received in Adam, and he replaces it with a heart of living flesh, a heart, a heart beating and pulsing with a desire to serve a risen Lord. And that desire and that process of holy, obedient, sanctified living is called a life of sanctification, holiness. That's what we call fruit-bearing of one who is born again. And that now is another of the precious benefits earned by Christ and granted to the Christian as a result of his resurrection. Those bought with his precious blood have all, have all their sins forgiven and they are raised from spiritual death to newness of life, life in Christ. They are no longer content to remain in their sin. They can no longer live in their sin. They recognize their sin. They weep, they mourn and anguish over their sin and they begin to hate their sin and flee from it more and more. If I can use an illustration, uh, albeit perhaps a poor one, it's like the spring sun. All winter long, the earth appears cold and dead. But when the spring sun begins to warm the earth, then suddenly new life arises everywhere. And then we see that the ground 
The ground really wasn't dead after all, but it springs to new life in the light of the rays of the spring sun. And in the same way, the life and living of the Christian basks in the rays of the resurrected Lord. He shines, he shines his sun upon them and their former dormant, sterile and impotent lives spring to new life. The life of obedient Christian thankfulness, sanctification. People got it is then also urgent for us to honestly search our own hearts and our lives for, for evidence of that new life that flows from Christ. And when we do that, we have to confess that there is still so much sin. And when I point a finger at you, I'm pointing three back at myself. But when we examine ourselves, we find that there is still so much sin, so much shame, so much failure. Our lives, our families, our marriages, our churches, they are not what God wants them to be. God calls us to be holy, but we are not. Our lives so infrequently reflect the holiness of Christ. Why is that now? Well, careful now. It can't be because we have not been given a sufficient measure of God's grace in Christ. No. Rather, it is because we ourselves refuse to give the Spirit of Christ sufficient room in our hearts and in our lives. It is our own sinful spirit, our own sinful spirits that still influences so much of our lives and living. We so often lose sight of the fact that Christ gave us his all. And so often we forget that he victoriously leads us on our way to glory. And so often we fail, we fail to give him our all. But but, but again, praise be to God. Here we are taught that Despite our sin, despite our failure, we ought not to lose hope. Or as the communion form captures it so eloquently and so beautifully when it says that although we often yet fall into even various heinous sin, we may not despair, yet we may not remain in it. My dear people of God, when you then become discouraged because of the sin in your life, do not despair. No, rather, look to him for strength. Put no confidence in yourself. The sinful arm of flesh will fail you always. In and of yourself, you can do nothing. Only in him can we move and have our being. Remember that he who has begun his good work in you, he will bring it to completion. Oh, walk then, work then, live then, out of your faith in his promises. Live then a life of thankful obedience in accordance with his law and then do so in gratitude for all that he has done and been and meant for you. Resist then, consciously resist the sinful inclinations of your own fallen heart. Learn to cry out with the psalmist, help me, help me thy will to do. Thy truth I will pursue. Teach me to fear. Give me the singleness of I, thy name to glorify. O Lord, my God most high, with heart sincere. And then finally, having taught us 
that our benefit of the resurrections of Christ consists of justification. We heard that. Sanctification, holiness, we heard that. The catechism now also will teach us of a further benefit, and that is glorification. We read the resurrection of Christ is to us a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. A pledge in the context in which it is used here means a guarantee. In a certain restricted sense, it's like a, it's like a down payment. And we need to be somewhat careful here for the analogy breaks down, of course, but, but if I were to buy something from you and I did not yet take possession for whatever reason, in order to demonstrate my serious intention to buy it at the proper time, I would give you a deposit. And in the same way now, Christ's resurrection is a down payment, a deposit, a pledge to verify the reality that glorification, eternal life and glory, is guaranteed for the believing child of God. But again, we need to pay close attention for the confession <laughs> clearly states that his resurrection is a pledge of our blessed resurrection. And that word blessed in this context contains two connotations, both of which we need to, which need to understand. First of all, we are taught here that there will be two resurrections. Hear me well. One for the blessed and one for the cursed. In other words, all will rise on that last great day. All will rise, the godly and the ungodly, the pious and the profane alike. The hour is coming when all will hear the voice of our Lord and all will rise, some to eternal life and others to eternal condemnation. There is then, people of God, there is then a living and a dying in Christ and a living and a dying outside of or apart from Christ. And those who have lived apart from Christ will also rise from the dead, but they will be eternally lost. Scripture is so very clear on that matter. But here in our confession, we speak of the blessed resurrection of the blessed, of the blessed people, we could say. Meaning then those who have been blessed with the blessed benefits of Christ's resurrection. In other words, the confession insists of us that we know and believe that those who die in the Lord will have their earthly bodies transformed to that of the glorified body of Christ. That is the glorious fruit or the benefit earned for us by Christ on that glorious Easter morning. And it is now in that light that the Lord calls us to view the graves of all of our loved ones who have gone on before us and who have died in the Lord. It is that glorious message that I have the blessed privilege to bring to you today. And it is that same glorious message we hear each time we stand around the grave of a loved one. People got the Bible is so clear and so emphatic about Christ's resurrection. It is, in fact, the linchpin of the entire Christian faith. Without it, Christianity cannot stand. Without the resurrection of Christ, we have no hope, and we're still without God in the world. But Christ has risen from the dead. And scripture is also emphatic in telling us that, that one of the greatest benefits of Christ's resurrection 
is the assurance of our own resurrection, yours and mine. At death, the body is sown in the ground. And, 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 but will not lie forgotten in the grave. At death, the body is sown in the ground, but will not lie forgotten in that grave. No, when Christ returns, he will call everybody out of their earthly resting places, and he will transform the body of believers into a glorious body. And in the context of all of this, allow me a brief interjection, if you will. My dear people of God, in this context, allow me to say to you that Paul teaches us in this chapter that the body is sown. And that already is a clue concerning how we are to treat the bodies of our departed loved ones. To sow something means to plant it in the ground. But unfortunately today, cremation has become the thing to do. We're being deceived into believing it is more ecologically friendly and therefore more pleasing to the Lord if we cremate rather than bury the dead. We're told that it is less costly, so also more stewardly. And tragically, even within the Christian church, more and more we are seeing Christians opting for cremation. And my dear precious people of God, in the context of what the Bible teaches us, of the value of the body of the believer in the, in the context of the bodily resurrection of the believer, I would argue that to cremate a body of a believer, although not the unpardonable sin, uh, it, it is not a good biblical option for Christians. The body is sown in the ground to await that last great day of the Lord. Even our Lord himself was buried in anticipation of his own resurrection. Oh, I know there are certain circumstances where bodies are accidentally destroyed in certain circumstances, and God will remedy all of that. But, but, but when given the choice, Christians should follow the leading of our Lord and choose to be buried, not cremated. Tell your children of your choice while you still can and explain to them that it is because of your hope and your confidence of your own bodily resurrection on that last great day of the Lord. Tell your children you want your body buried, not burned. My dear precious people of God, we, are, we see cemeteries all over the world, countless cemeteries with millions and millions of graves, not even counting the mass graves of wars and catastrophes and the unknown graves of millions. But we see millions of cemeteries and probably billions of graves, graves of mighty, mon, mighty men. The Queen of England was just will be laid to rest in a grave this, um, this coming week. We see graves of rulers. We see graves of kings and princes at the, of the earth. We see graves of common everyday folk. We see the graves of our grandparents, our parents, husband, wife, perhaps a precious child. How must we see those graves? Listen with me to the precious words of Scripture. Now I say, brethren, 
that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal has to put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. What a glorious gospel God gives to us and lets me preach to you. Oh, we don't deny that around the grave there is still so much pain, sadness, and sorrow. Earthly precious relationships are broken, never to return. Parents, husbands, wives, and even children are torn out of our hearts and out of our lives, and the pain and the tears are very real. We stand around the grave and we watch the casket being lowered into the ground, and our hearts break. And our Lord does not forbid us our sorrow, but he does forbid that we weep as those who have no hope. For we know death has been swallowed up in victory, and we know that our mortal corrupt bodies will be raised immortal and incorruptible. How all that will be, we don't know. Scripture is silent on that matter. And the information remains with the hidden things of God, and we still see through a glass darkly. But this much is certain and necessary for us to know. According to your Bible, our physical bodies will have a glorious future. But all of this is thanks to the resurrection of our Lord. He arose from the grave as head of the church, and as consequence, all members of his church will rise with him. Oh, not all those whose names are simply recorded on the membership rolls. No, some of them will still be lost in spite of the great graces that were set before them. But all true, active, living members of his body will arise, will be joined to their head in glory. He is the firstborn of those who have died in the Lord. People of God, will you remember that? When death's cold dew approaches your own brow, when you are called to walk in the shadow, in the valley of the shadow of death, will you then hold fast with bulldog's teeth to the promises of God? To doubt that as a child of the Lord constitutes sin. For the pledge, the guarantee of your resurrection was laid in and has risen from the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea on Easter morning. My dear precious, precious saints of God, what a glorious Easter song of praise has been heard by us this evening from our Bible. We've heard the glorious song from the Apostle Paul speaking the very words of God himself after him. The final enemy, death, has been defeated because, because, because he arose from the grave. 
pray with me then that it may be the blessed assurance of each and every one of us that we too may shout victoriously with the Apostle Paul, praise be to God who has given us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord.